As we are opening scripture, we're returning to our study in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Eric um, left, on, left us on chapter 11. Um, very good job in showing us the great uh, delivery that King Saul brought to the Israelites. Um, a less than perfect king, but it started well. And now we are having here kind of Samuel farewell statement. He's saying goodbye. He's passing the baton. This is a very uh, long um, sermon that he gave. He delivered for the people. Um, not so long in our pages of the Bible, right? We don't have everything that he said, but this is the gist of what he said um, and how the people responded. And I titled our sermon today for A Case for Faithfulness. And I try to use the word case because we're going to see a lot of um, just uh, legal terminology being referred to in the Bible to take a stand. To, to, it's like they are in court. And we are familiar with um, going in court and have, appearing before a judge, a judge. And last year, I think it was just a you know, the most crazy thing. Um, we have wit- witness, witness in the media a case of defamation, right? And both parties, very weird. Uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, I think even if you were not interested in the case, it kept showing up in social media and everywhere. But those, that, that case really brought to our attention this, you know, terminology of the courtroom and having witnesses and a prosecutor and Accusations were being brought and evidence was brought. The most private um, part of one's life exposed to examine and see what is truth here. Who is telling the truth? And they gave, you know, their word based on an oath and a sentence was given. Now, in our passage today, we'll see that the people are appearing before a court and at times it will change who are going to be the witnesses, who are going to be on the stand, being accused and being examined. And the criteria for that judgment, for that court, is faithfulness. Who is being faithful here? So I want you to keep this in mind. Um, I printed a, a, the outline and some passages there that you can look at. I don't know if you... If you don't have our outline, you can raise your hand, and Lindsay's passing them on there. Um, if you can, if you want to follow it, All right, over here, Lindsay, in the front. If you, um, and then I give you some extra uh, homework to do at home, some questions for you to be thinking about on the sermon. I think this is so important. Tim was saying, you know, uh, we as Christians, we we come to church because we enjoy it, because we. We, we want to savor God's word that is being taught here. But it's so much that you get when it's being preached, and we can't retain everything. And this exercise of us, you know, meditating and thinking about it and asking questions to the text and thinking, how does this apply to my life? I think this is very important. It's like the, 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 the cow that chew the cud, right? They, they eat. It's kind of weird. And then they bring it back, and they keep, like, chewing to really 
sucking all the nutrients. And, and that's what we need to do with God's word. We need to take it in every single nutrient and see how that nourishes us. All right? So with no more delays, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'm not going to read the whole chapter at once, but we will um, I'll reread it as we, we move along with the passage. Let's start in verse uh, 1 and make our way through verse 5. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you. But I'm old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox has I, have I taken, and whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from the whom's hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or haven't taken anything from a man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with humility of hearts asking that you would um, open our understanding as we come to this text, as we see the different people speaking and uh, this court situation happening here in Israel. May we look at how you, you handle this and how you taught your people to fear you so that we might be taught as well. I pray, Father, that we would um, take that place of examining ourselves and seeing if we have been faithful to you. May we learn from them. May we be encouraged by your words. May we be challenged. May we also find hope and comfort in your words. Pray, Lord, that you would challenge us and help us to focus as we learn your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Right from verse 1 here, we see that Samuel is giving his national uh, a speech to the people of Israel. We were left in Gilgal, where a place of remembrance. Um, if you look at verse 14, verse 14 15, um, where Eric left off, they, were, they had this gathering. And this is where Samuel um, puts this uh, sermon here to the people of Israel, this uh, inquiry. Samuel closed the books on his own lengthy tenure of service as a leader for all Israel. They, are, they now have a king. It's a new leadership. He began reminding the people that he had cooperated with them in transition to this new system of leadership. In fact, he was the one who appointed a king over Israel, it says there in verse 1. And this was accomplished when Samuel was old and gray. He was in his old years. You will, will be reminded of that on chapter 8, 3 and 4. 
What does it say there about Samuel's son? Verse 3 says that his sons, however, did not walk according, uh, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverse justice. Then all elder, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They brought the accusation of before Samuel about his sons. And now Samuel is saying, you know, I want you to examine me. See if I have done the things that you accuse my sons of doing. So our first point here is faithfulness examined, faithfulness examined. There is a record of integrity. Samuel is going to list here several things that um, his sons have done and potentially I want you to look at my life. That's what he's saying. Have I committed these same things? In verse 2, the concept of leadership is conveyed with the Hebrew idiom, literally, to walk before their faces. I have walked before your faces. Some translations actually say, I have ruled you. I have um, leader, you know, been a leader among you in this way. This has been true of Samuel. I have led you from my youth to this day, and now it's true of Saul. That's what he's saying here. He's pointing. See, this is the king that is going to lead you now. Effective leadership for the Hebrews was not a matter of forcing others to follow, but of setting such a good example that others would be inspired to follow their, their way of walking, conducting themselves. You will remember that Samuel's word was all over Israel because he was consistent with what he was preaching, with what he was teaching. And his integrity was known to all. Samuel had walked before the people as a leader for many years. Now it is Saul's opportunity to do so. His, whole, his bold example in opposing Nahash, uh, last chapter we saw in chapter 11, inspired an entire nation to follow Saul. That was a good thing. I mean, it's not going to last for very long, but it was a good example that Saul had set up, and people were inspired to follow him. Holding court one last time with the people of Israel, Samuel Finals' act as a judge was to put himself on trial. In this case, Samuel was the defendant, and the people were the prosecutors. The Lord and his anointed were the enforcing authorities. They were there as witnesses before um, Samuel and the people. Nothing that his public career had been, uh, uh, noting that his public career was a lengthy one, from his, all the way from his youth. You remember that Samuel was just a boy when he started serving the Lord in the temple. Samuel invited anyone with just cause to bear witness against him, in verse 3, 
If he had violated the laws and standards of conduct, he would restore it to every single person that he wronged. However, the people accounted Samuel's conduct as the judge to be faultless. With the Lord um, and the Saul, as he he was anointed as witnesses, the people declared that Samuel had not defrauded, meaning he didn't cheat anyone or oppressed anyone, nor had he taken anything from anyone's hand. It's very different from his sons, right? God did precisely that. The example of Israel's last charge would thus contrast sharply with King Israel's kings, who had often cheated and oppressed them and would take their people's sons and daughters and their produce and their animals. New structures do not modify the essential bond between God and his people. And care was to be taken to maintain faithfulness to God, whatever the norm of external administration of Israel's affairs. They were changing leadership, but God's principle was the same. God wanted faithfulness to be upheld by his people. Samuel's appeal for vindication is a testimony of his integrity as one who had walked before their faces. Samuel understood the importance of setting a good example for others. Had seen crimes perpetrated by Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. If you remember that from the beginning of our studies, um, he, he had observed the weaknesses of Eli, Eli's withdrawn leadership style when his sons were doing things wrong, when they were eating the sacrificed food for, that was supposed to be for God and they were taking for themselves. Eli just remained silent when his sons were. Um, acting on that way. God even used Eli's corruption in his family not to draw Samuel uh, into wrongdoing, but to encourage him to keep a healthy distance from all that might tarnish his office. You will remember that Samuel was raised by Eli, so he saw that growing up. But he was determined to leave with integrity and to build his leadership on the foundation of personal piety and integrity. Even as a youth, Samuel's devout life and careful words convinced all Israel that he was a trustworthy prophet. Uh, If you look at chapter 3, verses 19, 21, just turn back a few pages there. says, thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words to fail. And all Israel, from Dan, even to Beersheba, all the way from north to the south of the country, they knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord appeared again in Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So that close connection with God and with his word made Samuel the great prophet and priest that he was. Israel elders might question Samuel's wisdom, right? They, they thought, well, maybe you can give us a king. We're questioning his wisdom and how to administer politically the country, but no one could question his character. How often political leaders fail. How few can issue Samuel's challenge and expect no allegations to be coming? 
I mean, I remember recently in, in Brazil, we had a president that, that went to jail for two years. And now, lo and behold, had a new judge that overturned the whole thing. And now he's back to power. I mean, can't, and, and he was examined by many, many judges and found guilty. And here you are. So how often political leaders fail? How few can issue Samuel's challenge and expect no allegations to be coming? A faithful leader is cleared of improper conduct. He is above reproach. His testimony recalls that of Moses, Numbers 16, verse 15. You can read that later. And also in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in many texts, Paul is, keeps saying, okay, come on, examine me. See if I have wronged you. How about we take a look on some of these passages? 2 Corinthians, and we're going to skip a few, just read a few verses here where Paul uses this language of um, inviting people to look into his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And the context of, of telling people to pursue holiness and purity. He says, um, verse 2 of chapter 7, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul is encouraging those believers that, you know, I love you. I, I care for you deeply, but you can examine my life that I am not doing none of these out of, of selfish ambition, of, of ulterior motives. I'm doing this out of integrity. The same thing he says in, um, if you flip to chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, it says, questioning them because people were questioning his apostleship and the legitimacy of his ministry. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Now, let me give you a little bit of context here. Paul's ministry in the church in Corinth, in the city of Corinth, when he was there preaching the gospel, he decided um, even though he had believers, and it was a very wealthy city, the believers could have paid him as a minister. They didn't. He was a tent maker. Um, he said, you know, I am going to preach the gospel and not even take any money from you, even if that means that I'm going to have little sleep and that I'm going to spend more time um, preaching the gospel free of charge. It says, I robbed other churches, and he kind of uses a little irony that I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. So other churches were paying Paul to do ministry in Corinth. And you have the church of Thessalonica or Berea that were sending uh, money to, to Corinth so Paul could actually do ministry. I mean, how could he live? In other text, he says, how can someone that goes to war, um, do they have to work and wage war at the same time? And then he says, um, 
When I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. But when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I'll continue to do so. Paul's point here is, I did not do anything to you out of ambition or greed for money. Now, move to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and that offer came from the Thessalonians. Paul has the same argument with them. Look, examine me and see if I have wronged you, if I have done anything that is questionable. So chapter 2, starting in verse 9, says, "For For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So this theme of not being a burden is that Paul had basically um, a side job to be able to you know, do his finances and buy food and pay the rent or whatever his living condition was. Paul is saying, I did this all that you wouldn't have anything against me, that I didn't proclaim the gospel out of ambition, but out of um, the motive of wanting your salvation. Your witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Why is that godly leaders set a good example? So that when people look at their lives, they would have a model to follow. Many times Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. You look at, you look at my example. Because I too am following the Lord. So all positions in leadership must strive to maintain such standards of integrity. In the same way, church, there is a high calling for those in leadership to be above reproach. First Timothy, if you want to follow there, I'm not going to read all the text, but talks about leadership, how leadership should be put in church. The main call there is that there would be above reproach Nothing that you can hold on to. Oh, there's this little dirty thing here that we can raise against them. No. They are supposed to be above reproach. Both elders and deacons, they do not have a perfect life, but they have a consistently exemplary life, a history of obedience, a record of integrity. And that is seen in their own home and everywhere they go. I mean, look in verse 6. Um, it says that not, uh, the person is not to be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation um, incurred by the devil and that he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Keep moving to verse 10 when he talks about deacons. These men must also be first tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are 
beyond reproach. So you see, when God calls people, his main qualification has very little to do with degrees or accolades that he might have achieved. It has everything to do with integrity because he wants to have a model for his people to stand on. They're not perfect people. They have failures. But as you look at the record of their life, you see integrity as a consistency. Integrity is really a rare trait. Oh, I I do pray for the Lord to send more Samuels in our midst. I believe that we as a church, we should pray for the Lord's grace, not not only to give us leaders of integrity, but also a grace for them to persevere in integrity. How many of us would have the courage to challenge our families or our friends or even our enemies to find faults in our lifestyles? Confident and nothing outward will be found. We live in an inquisitive society that delights in finding skeletons in closets and shining spotlights in the dark corners of others' lives. Those who seek political office must do so with the knowledge that their finances, their morals, even their language will become subject to public scrutiny. Few emerge unscathed from the rigors of public investigation. I like this commentator that makes a point that most of us, of course, we're not holding positions of political power, but all of us have influence far beyond our awareness. Others look to us for leadership and follow our example. Samuel challenges us to live with integrity, to be honest in our dealings and truthful in our speaking. All of us walk before faces. The, I, I like what he says here. All of us, as the text says, walk before faces. The faces of who? Of our family, of our friends, of co-workers and neighbors. Do we want them to walk as we walk? Now that we have seen faithfulness examined, we will see faithfulness contrasted. Coming back to our text in 1 Samuel, we'll see now a little shift in the, in the chairs, in the stand here, now that Samuel has been cleared of this examination, he switches. Who now is going to be examined? Uh, the people. They're, they are to examine God and, their, and his history. Then Samuel said to the people, verse 6, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers from the land of Egypt. Oh, mind you, I'm going to read from the, the verse 5, actually. He said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Now he's going to switch. <coughs> who is going to be examined now? He wants to contrast the Lord's faithfulness to their unfaithfulness, to their faithlessness. It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron who brought you, your fathers out from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand 
that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. Having been exonerated by the people as Israel's judge, Samuel here asserted himself as Israel's prophet. In the longest single quotation in the Hebrew Bible attributed to Samuel, the prophet delivered a stern admonition and warning, flanked by a historical introduction, and then the statement of warning on the divine disapproval. In a manner reminiscent of the Old Testament prophetic messages, Samuel casts his message in a judicial mode and symbolically put Israel on trial. The assembled people were called to stand and hear the evidence. Now let's hear the evidence that Samuel is bringing. It's in this lawsuit terminology in verse 7. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers. His purpose is to remind the people of Israel of their past inclination for rebellion and God's unblemished record of faithfulness. Even as Samuel has been faithful, so the Lord has been faithful with his people. Samuel began by presenting a panorama of God's righteous acts from the time of Moses until the present day. Samuel historical review, it starts with the deliverance from Egypt in verse 8 that we just read here, that the Lord raised Moses and Aaron as, a, as leaders to bring his people out of Egypt. It says, um, out of Egypt and settled them in a place, but they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, captain of the army of Hedzor and into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hands of the kings of Moab, and they fought against them. Now this is, he's giving a history of the time of the judges. They distanced themselves from the Lord, and God allowed their enemies to oppress them. And then what happens in verse 10? They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Bidon, and we don't know who this Bidon is, maybe another judge that wasn't uh, mentioned in Judges, in the book of Judges, and Jephthah, and then the last judge, Samuel. And God delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. We have a need to look back and see how the Lord has acted and see how we have acted, responding to his faithfulness. Samuel wanted the people to remember their inclination to rebellion. He reminded the people how God invariably had allowed them to fall into bondage as a, a punishment for apostasy. But he had always been sympathetic to their resulting trouble. He raised powerful judges in response to Israel's repentant cry for deliverance. These illustrations from Israel's past were employed to remind Israel of two simple and yet profound theological truths. First, it is the Lord alone, not kings, not armies or weapons or alliances, who rescues his people from foreign oppressors. God, he was the one that rescues them. 
though he does so through specially chosen human beings, it is he who delivered them. And then second, Yahweh rescues his people in response to their prayers and repentance. That was the reason why he was reminding them of these truths. Lastly, Samuel referenced to the Baals and Asherahs who had tempted Israel in the past may imply that there is something idolatrous about their present devotion to a king. In essence, Samuel was pointing out to the folly of change for the sake of change. Samuel reveals to us that this Ammonite crisis sparkled by Nahash in verse 12 here. says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord, your God, was your king. Even though in chapter 8, we see that this initiative of having a king was sparkled by the elders that asked for a king who previously had brought their demands to Samuel and Ramah, um, we hear here that actually that request came out of fear. Nothing happens in a vacuum, and the elders who pressed Samuel and Ramah could have been motivated by the news of Nahash earlier attacks. But God has proved himself. I want you to just think about this. God has proved himself to be faithful in the past. So why should the people now insist on a king when they faced similar circumstances? There's nothing wrong with having a king. It's the motivation for them having that. They thought, God can't deliver us anymore. As a result of their suffering and loss, Israel cried out, to the Lord in anguish. Of great significance is the fact that their plea was not expressed in as an explicit call for help. Instead, it was an admission that they had violated the terms of the Sinai covenant. They said, we have forsaken, we have abandoned the Lord, and we, saved, we served Baals and Asterisks. Israel's troubles were the direct result of one fundamental sin. They had violated their sacred relationship with their divine king. They turned aside from their devotion to the Lord and the people had not created. And we have to realize this, it's not that they just abandoned God and there was a vacuum in their worship, it's that they abandoned God and they decided to serve now these false gods. Yet when Israel repented, the Lord responded graciously to their plea. And in response to Israel's repentant words, the Lord delivered them. He did so by sending human agents, as we've seen all these leaders. I want to remind you that we, like the Israelites, we are so prone to misplace our trust in false gods. When in trouble, they sought security and protection somewhere else other than God. Often we, too, place our confidence in people institutions to provide us with peace and security, affirmation. Like those who worshiped physical idols, we spend time and effort cultivating these false gods. We compromise for the sake of approval or being accepted or feeling loved. We bargain, manipulate, and deceive to get what we want. 
But at the end, we all find frustration. What we find is frustration and disappointment. I want to take you in two texts here um, in the prophets. Jeremiah is the first one, and then we'll see another text here in Hosea, where Israel really hasn't changed much throughout the years. And God, in a similar manner, is bringing this evidence before them. Look how faithful I have been to you, and yet you have um, denied. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9 to 13. Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 9. Imagine the the court scene here being lived again. Therefore, I will will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. To cross the coastlands of Ketin and see and send to Kedar and observe closely. He's saying, you know, look at the other nations. Look at these other places that do not know the Lord for those of us that have been studying Ephesians, we remember that we as Gentiles, we didn't know anything about God. And, and God is calling them, just look at these nations. Observe them closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? So even the Gentiles, the unfaithful people that do not know the Lord, they had their own false gods, Have they changed their false gods? And rhetorical question, no, they haven't. But be appalled. Then he says, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. And he asks the heavens as, as the witness, really before them, at this, and shudder and be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. What was the two evils? Same thing that happened before. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they who for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It leaks. It, it, it promises this refreshing, this clean, fresh water, but all you get out of it is muddy waters which can't quench our thirst and ultimately will leave us high and dry. That's why the Lord asks us to look back to see how, how his, his ultimate, he is the ultimate fountain that satisfies. Another prophet that illustrates this scenario at a later time in Israel's history is Hosea. He, in a very similar manner, talks about Israel following into idolatry, but he illustrates this as this idolatry in terms of adultery. Hosea chapter 2, and um, we're getting at verse 5. It's a a story of delusion. Uh, Some of you might have studied this, but Hosea married this woman was very promiscuous, and she was committing adultery. And that was an illustration 
of Israel, being adulterous, being idolatrous. So in verse 5, he says, talking about this woman, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I'll go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. What is she saying here? These, these lovers, these competitors with her husband, they're the ones providing for her. They're the ones giving her comfort and, and bliss. That's the promise. And the Lord wouldn't let that happen. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. God had to intervene so she wouldn't continue to pursue her false gods. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but she will not find them. Then she'll say, I'll go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the new wine and the oil and that lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal, false gods. I, every time I read this passage, I, I'm just amazed. That's what false gods do. They give us the impression that they are the source, that they are the ones that give us the pleasure and the contentment and the joy and the affirmation and the love we need. When all along, the Lord is that source. These people or circumstances or institutions that the Lord put in our lives, that we idolize them, they're just but means of his grace to us. But we think it is them that gives those things to us. It is there where my contentment is. It is there that my joy is. But they're just means of his grace. And sometimes the Lord does bring hardships so we might see that he is the one who brings us the joy and the peace that we so desperately look for. So we need to look back in the same way in our tendency to pursue false gods, the broken cisterns, which can hold no water, we believe that they will satisfy, they will keep us safe, they will give us joy when it was God all along that gave us those things. That is why we need to look back to our faithlessness. But we need not to stay there. We need to look forward. That's our next sub-point here. The need to look forward, and we're primarily looking forward to Yahweh's trustworthiness. He is trustworthy. We don't need to wallow in our sin, but we not only need, but we, we should pursue um, the Lord. Let's keep reading on verse 13. Now, therefore, he is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it, is, as it was against your fathers. 
even now take a stand and see the great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. The Lord now moves on to give instruction regarding their present. As they look to the full look uh, forward to their future, Samuel also makes it clear that Israel could experience blessing. You know, now you have a king. You are under this monarchy, and you can be successful. You can be blessed. If they, if they listened, in other words, they obeyed the Lord. Right? In Scripture, whenever you hear, listen to the Lord, it's basically you obey to him. You obey him. But it seems like it wasn't just cutting it. Samuel had to do something bigger to draw their attention. Have you ever pressed an argument with a child, with a toddler, trying to convince them of something? Or with a parent or with a friend? An argument that uses reason and logic and sense, an argument that no ambiguities or escape, only to realize that your airtight case fails to convince. It doesn't penetrate their defenses. Samuel apparently knew this. He knew that he could lay down a solid case with all wisdom and reason, but it would not necessarily phase Israel at all. Not likely would get through the thick barrier. Samuel likely knew that the verbal truth without a visual aid would leave Israel cold. So he set forth his case, laid down the alternatives. You know, you can obey or disobey. This is what's going to happen if you go one way or the other. Then he ran swiftly into announcing Israel's thunder and rain, this great thing that he would bring, he would show them. Though this convocation was occurring during the wheat harvest in the early part of the dry season, it says in verse 17, um, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and reigned that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Um, it is very interesting this because uh, the harvest seasons, early May or June, um, they don't have rains. It, it's not a. It's a good thing that it doesn't rain because if you're collecting grains, you don't want it to be spoiled and ruined by rain. This highly unusual meteorological event would be a sign helping Israel to realize how displeased the Lord was with them that they asked for a king. Heavenly booms ought to get Israel's attention this time. Granted, a, a deafening, drenching thunderstorm can certainly terrify and humble folks, but would mere agonizing thunder and pounding rain cause such fear, such conviction of, wi of wickedness of the many a king? Why this sudden insight? Because they do get scared. Because Israel knew that this was no mere thunder or rain. Samuel had said that it was wheat harvest. That was May and June, beginning of the dry season. Every Israelite knew that rain was extremely rare at that time. Like Pastor Ralph Davis compares this event as, uh, as something like, just imagine, just picture, think, Six inches of snow in Miami in Memorial Day. <laughs> it's just something that you wouldn't see. Not impossible, 
but so unheard of that it tends to make one think. Hence, Yahweh got, got their attention. Exactly as predicted and requested, the Lord sent that thunder and rain, an event that would have damaged the heads of the ripe grain, thereby causing grains of wheat to fall to the ground and the harvest to be reduced. The timing and nature of this occurrence were striking. And all the Israel, verse 18 says, that they all feared the Lord. If this storm was a sign, what did it mean? What did it signify? It showed that the covenant curses were not a mere official words tucked away in a canonical document, but lively threats of a living God who had the power to impose them at any and even the most unlikely time. You see, they needed to see that what they have done was an evil thing but they have their senses dulled not to see the truth that was right in front of them, that the Lord had, I mean, we read chapter 8, he already condemned them for asking for a king. Samuel keeps repeating that to them, but it doesn't sit in until here. Only when God's people see their sin from his perspective is there hope for them to turn from it. Sometimes our sins so dull our senses that it takes a big event to convince. I remember a situation as such when um, Lindsay and I were living in an apartment in California. It always started with a scary encounter of Lindsay had with um, the previous week with a rat in our kitchen. I didn't see it. Uh, you know, everything was dark. We're just coming back from uh, visiting some friends and and she just heard the noise, <laughs> the screeching of the, the rat. And we didn't see anything after that. And it was a whole week of battling. You know, we put a bunch of traps. And we had people bring the uh, people from, um, what do you call it, the, the pastor? Yeah, the pest control to bring more traps and nothing. It was like a whole week going and nothing. That, and then we started smelling something weird. The whole house was smelling. It was just, oh, disgusted that we looked everywhere, removed furniture, and we couldn't find anything. We talked to the manager, begged our manager to check our AC, which seemed to be the cause of the smelly malaise in our home. Mind you, it was getting pretty close to summer, so we couldn't turn our AC on because of the smell. After much argumentation, we built our case, and the assistant manager showed up. To our surprise, he said, no, I don't smell anything unusual. We invited him to come further into the house, and he said, no, nothing. So finally, uh, turned the AC on, and his son that came with him, he said, Dad, I can smell it. <laughs> but his dad remained unconvinced, and he finally assented to remove the unit. And there was the unbearable, the unsufferable smell of a decomposing rat. You see, we all have these stench situations in our lives, and some might deny, but sooner or later, God makes it clear in a way that is frightfully convincing. We seem to have a stench situation in this verses 16 to 19. How can the living God get you to fear 
your subtle idolatry, to be alarmed by it, to be repulsed by it, to be disgusted or even become aware of it unless he shows you how it smells to him. For us, we don't realize the, how horrible our sin is, but to God, it's repulsive. In order to impress this upon his people, he scared the liver out of them by a sign of his holy anger. Fear of Yahweh's righteous wrath seemed to be the open way to repentance. Verse 19 says that in all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. What matters, um, what matters is whether there is a basis true for fear. You see, we, we tend to avoid this word fear. We don't, it's, well, you should fear God, be afraid of God, scared of God. If there is a reason to tremble, we ought to tremble. Neither the church nor individual Christians should be above truthful terror. If God grants us a sight of our own sin and of his displeasure, we can be sure that he does not do so merely to see us tremble, but to see us tremble and be restored. In 1 Samuel 12, we see both the kindness and the severity of God, Romans eleven twenty-two. We're not going to open that, but it says that both the kindness and the severity of God, that's what brings us to himself. If we don't realize the Lord's wrath against sin and, and his disgust for sin, and also his kindness. We won't believe, we won't repent. Yahweh in intends fear as the way to faithfulness. Remember that hymn? It says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. Romans 11, 22 says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. The role of fear in righteous living is frequently misunderstood and dismissed in the Old Testament. But when the Apostle John states there is no fear in love, he is referring to fear of judgment. For those who are in Christ, we shouldn't fear being condemned to hell anymore. He might discipline us, but not as a way of punishing us for our sins but to draw our attention to our way of living. For those who are graciously drawn to glimpse the greatness and the holiness of God, fear and love are not opposites. The nearer an individual lives to God, the greater his reverence and awe for God's majesty and his splendor. Such fear guards against presumption and violation of his words. Maintaining a healthy respect for God is the essence of leaving a relationship with him. Proverbs 1.7, what does it say? It is the fear of the Lord that begins, begins with wisdom, right? And then lastly, I'm going to finish quickly here, faithfulness demonstrated. There's a record of commitment. One is the record, God's steadfast commitment toward the people of Israel. 
And then the other one is the commitment of his prophet toward his people. I want you to be comforted with this truth. Because when we talk about judgment, about God revealing our sins to us and showing the stinkiness of it, I don't want us to be hopeless. That's why God leaves the, the, the rest of the passage here. Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord, serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside. Then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they're futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on the account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I'll instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things it has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So here it is, the closing chapter for Samuel. He's telling them, here is a new chapter for you. Fear the Lord because he's faithful. He is trustworthy. You can put, place your trust in him that is not based on your obedience because when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's committed to his people. Not because they are better, because they deserve, but because of his great name. We do not, leave to, do not need to live in terror when we repent, God will forgive. His grace is greater than our sin. We do not need to try to reverse all the irreversible consequences of our sins, but badly accept the fresh grace from God. Your call to fidelity at this point. Then there's a question. How can we remain faithful? When we are sinners, when we know that our inclinations is to have and to run after these false gods. You see Samuel's ministry to the people of Israel exemplified to the people the Lord's faithfulness toward them, his commitment to praying, exhorting, instructing, and illustrates their commitment that the Lord had himself for his people. We too can find great comfort that the Lord is committed to us not that we are Israelites, but that we have been added to God's people during this present time of the church. We too have an intercessor, a teacher who ever leads and pleads for us. Open your Bibles to John chapter 2. What to do when we are confronted with the stench of our sin. When we are scared of its consequences. Hear the comforting words of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is himself 
the propitiation, the sacrifice, the punishment for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, and if we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How can we walk in integrity? By walking closely to our Lord Jesus Christ. By confessing sin, walking with him daily. And when we do fail, here we have Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who have passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear Lord, we come before you with thankfulness that even when we are unfaithful to you, you remain faithful. You provide a way for us to see the ugliness of our sin, not to lead us into despair, Lord, but to lead us into confidence that you are ever-present help in a time of need. May we be humble, as John says, Lord, to confess our sins to you and have the confidence that you are the one that can take away our sins. And when we are being tempted, maybe we be reminded that you are interceding for us, that you are caring for us, that we might live in integrity and walk the walk that you prepared for us. We pray that you would bless uh, the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.